Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our opening song is Stardust, a song written by Indiana native Hoagy Carmichael and here performed by Dave Brubeck off the live album Jazz at Oberlin, recorded in May of 1953. In June of that same year, Sylvia Plath would find herself in New York as an intern at Mademoiselle magazine. In August, she would attempt to end her life by swallowing sleeping pills, hiding herself away in the crawl space under her house in Wellesley, Massachusetts. She had already been the recipient of electroshock therapy. Our show today is Fixing the Stars, Sylvia Plath at the Edge of Sight. Sylvia Plath matters in many ways, first as a poet, but also as a lens through which to see and critique her times and ours. Her life in the mid-20th century is chronicled as fully in her own words as it is by the biographers to come, by those who would solve the problem of her death, and by those who would see her death as the value proposition for her work. Sylvia Plath died by suicide on February 11, 1963, at the age of 30, and in doing so bequeathed the literary and academic world a separate entity, an industry even, a case to work on, a subject to investigate, a wound to bandage or to make bleed again. Plath suffered from depression and suicidal ideation from very early in her life. Her death is often all one knows about her, her head in an oven, her two children in bed, probably awake. She took great pains to be sure they were not harmed and that they would be found and cared for on that very day. One cannot read her work without casting an eye at every phrase as if it reveals the death to come. We may read in Plath's life a chapter in the history of psychiatry, and it is a tale of woe and misogyny, made most explicit in Plath's one published novel, The Bell Jar. But there is no shortage of literature and reportage detailing the harrowing treatments on offer by this so-called medical profession. During this period, electroshock therapy was done as often by itinerant practitioners, what our guest today, Heather Clark, calls shock artists, as by established and regulated doctors. Clark's new biography stresses that Plath's fear of institutionalization and more shock therapy in 1963, was surely one motivation for her final act. It is the contradictions that Plath presents that draw us to her. She worked with intense dedication to be heard in a world that has no ears to hear women. But Plath was a woman who wrote many times of her disdain for women, for being a woman. And in her journals, she often wrote of the women who might be her competition. Of men, they were her peers, and she would count their opinions and assistance as most relevant to her. And we must see this, at least on one level, as pragmatic. Men did and do hold the cards and pull the strings. Our guest today is Heather Clark, a professor of contemporary poetry at the University of Huddersfield and author of the new biography, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, published by Knopf. And now, Fixing the Stars, Sylvia Plath at the Edge of Sight, on Interchange on WFHB. Do you have uh, favorite poems? I mean, and people do. I assume you have yours after having worked so long with them. I actually, I think I like the the bleak ones the, the best. I think the ones about what, well, I think they're about depression mm -hmm. um, are my favorites. Like the moon and the yew tree 
and Sheep and Fog. I think those are maybe my two favorites. Um, Maybe The Moon and the Yew Tree. Uh, The first line, this is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. Oh, I mean, what a first line. I just think she aestheticizes this this experience of depression in such an arresting and compelling way. And in fact, the the title of this book for seven years or so was The Light of the Mind, um, a biography of Sylvia Plath. You know, one of the things that the images that struck me or strike me every time I, I, I dip into it is the sort of stars like under the water. Oh, yeah. They're, they they change, right? Sometimes they shimmer. Sometimes they're stuck down there. Sometimes they're frozen. Yeah. You know, um, but it's like always under the water. Like, in, you know, it's because you're gazing at the water, I guess. You you see the stars underneath. Yeah. Fixed stars govern our life in, in words. That's another one of my favorites, words. Yeah. Another quite bleak poem. But Are there poems that aren't bleak? Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> But I actually love Lady Lazarus and the performative, campy black humor of it. I feel like Plath is almost turning the mirror back on us. The speaker of the poem is someone who is performing a kind of ghastly striptease. Um, and the audience pays to come watch her perform another suicide. And I feel like in that poem, Plath is really speaking ironically, in a sense, just turning that mirror back on us and our need to be voyeurs and to, again, to watch that spectacle of the woman falling apart. And then um, she calls the audience the peanut crunching crowd. And, and I feel like that poem is quite prescient in terms of where we went with our culture and reality television and all kinds of things. So yeah, she's got her number. She does. Yeah. Lady Lazarus. I have done it again. One year in every ten, I manage it. A sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight. My face a featureless fine Jew linen. Peel off the napkin, oh my enemy. Do I terrify? Yes, yes, Herr Professor, it is I. Can you deny the nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth? The sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh the grave cave ate will be at home on me, and I a smiling woman. I'm only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments. The peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot. The big strip tease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone, I may be Japanese. Nevertheless, I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened, I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I've a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout, a miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood. 
or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, so, Herr Doctor. So, Herr Enemy. I am your opus. I am your valuable. The pure gold baby that melts to a shriek. I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern. Ash, ash, you poke and stir flesh, bone. There is nothing there, a cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Hear God, hear Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. It wouldn't leave me alone, this idea that, that Plath had been pathologized in, in some of these previous biographies. And I just felt like she needed to be taken more seriously as, as one of the most brilliant poets of her generation and not as the mad, quote unquote, mad, hysterical um, poet in the doom and gloom and this sort of thing. And, um, and so I just decided that I was going to try to write this thing. And I wrote up a proposal and um, luckily Knopf wanted to publish it and gave me the the time and space to write a big book, which I don't take that for granted at all. Was there anything that has had happened at that point that made it seem like you would be able to do more with it than people had in the past? Yes. One of the, the reasons I finally decided that I would, I would try to do this is because I knew there was a lot of new material coming down the pike. I knew that all of Sylvia Plath's surviving letters would be published in 2018. Um, and I, I was actually kind of helping with that project. So I, I knew all of that was going on. Uh, I knew that there was more to be mined in Ted Hughes's archives at the British Library and Emory. A new archival collection about Sylvia Plath opened at Emory fairly recently with lots of new files and new information. So so I was I was lucky in that sense. And of course, a lot of time had gone by. And I just think um, emotions were less raw. You know, it was I think it was a better time to write about Sylvia Plath 50 years later mm-hmm. um, in terms of just the historical perspective. So I had those, those things on, on my side. Biographies are difficult uh, in lots of ways, as, as you know, and, and particularly, as you already noted, with Plath. Um, as much because Plath is the writer she is, or Plath is many writers. There's so much that is... Yeah in different voice here, right? So yeah. Sylvia says this in her journal, Sylvia says this in her yeah. letters, you know, Ted says this in his journals, et cetera. Ted, yes. Somebody remembers X and somebody else remembers Y. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a minefield. I mean, I really tried to rely on the documentary evidence and there's a lot of quotation in the book because ultimately we just don't know. Um, and sometimes the best thing we can rely on is, is a letter bearing witness to an event with the caveat that Sylvia Plath, when she was writing to her mother, for example, would would try to paint a rosy picture, and I, you know, I tried to make that clear, right? And so there are different ways of of reading her her letters uh, as opposed to reading her journals, which are kind of more raw and honest about her vulnerabilities, her experience with depression, for example, which she very rarely touches on in her letters to others. But I was very lucky, again, I want to mention being able to quote from all of Sylvia Plath's surviving letters. I mean, that there hadn't been a biographer who had really been able to do that before. I wanted to take advantage of that and try to center her voice as much as I, I could, really. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Fixing the Stars, about the life and poetry of Sylvia Plath. Our guest is Heather Clark, whose new 966-page biography, not counting notes and index, is Red Comet, published by Knopf. We've been exploring the problems that come from writing the 11th biographical treatment of Plath, but also a new freedom now that Plath's daughter, Frida Hughes, controls the Plath estate. problems with Plath biographies in the past has been uh, just the fact of uh, Ted Hughes and Owen Hughes having uh, control of that content, you know, her life's work, basically. So uh, explain a little bit about that. Why was this in the way of biography? When Sylvia Plath died, Ted Hughes, she died interstate. So they were still married and Ted Hughes inherited her copyright. And so uh, his sister, Olwyn, was kind of the gatekeeper uh, for many decades. She was, she felt that she was Ted's biggest defender and you know ted hughes and feminism kind of the world worlds were colliding in the 1960s and 1970s and olwyn fell again in this gatekeeper role she didn't necessarily want to give permission to feminist scholars or not really sort of most scholars <laughs> um it was really tough to to get permission from her. I think if you were a Plath biographer. Having said that, they did they did commission a biography of Plath from certain people, but the people that they commissioned never seemed to to finish. Olwyn worked very closely with Anne Stevenson in her book Bitter Fame. Olwyn eventually kind of wrestled <laughs> authorial control from Anne Stevenson, as Stevenson famously noted in her her prologue. She she said this book is a work of dual authorship. So it's it's just a very kind of fraught history. The Plath estate is now in the hands of Frida Hughes, mm. Ted Hughes, and Sylvia Plath's daughter. I think it's a bit easier to to write about Plath now, again with the perspective of of distance. How many biographies were there before this? This is the eighth major biography of Plath, and I think the eleventh, if you count sort of shorter biographies. And what that means, you're all, you're constantly in a reactive mode and reacting against what's gone before. And uh, that was fairly exhausting. Another reason why I wanted to write the biography was because I, I did feel that so there had been so much fantastic Plath scholarship over the past 10 years. And, and I felt like within the academy, um, she was highly regarded as a very ironic and playful and performative writer and, you know, who's someone who really plays with that idea of, of confession. Whereas I think in, in what I call the popular imagination and media representations, she was still seen as a suicide. And I think her name had was synonymous with madness and tragedy. So I, I suppose biography for me was a way of trying to bring all of that really brilliant scholarship to a general audience. Um, and again, try to change that perception of Plath. I guess it begs the question sometimes, right? The yeah. interest in the life is because of the death. Uh, obviously, there'd be interest in her work and mm -hmm. perhaps interest in understanding, you know, the, the life that brings the art into being. The suicide is so essential to her readership in a lot of ways, right? I didn't want to write a book that centered the suicide and centered the mental illness and the experiences with depression. Now, having said that, um, those were really important experiences in her life, her, you know, her, especially her dealings with depression. And I didn't, didn't want to minimize it or sanitize it 
in any way, but I also didn't want to sensationalize it. You know, I've been thinking about Britney Spears lately because of this New York Times documentary and just this idea of how we as a how we as a society love to watch the spectacle of a woman falling apart. And, you know, we, we sort of feasted on Spears' dissolution back in the early 2000s. And I sometimes think that Plath is a kind of a posthumous victim of, of that kind of, you know, want, people wanting to watch the train wreck or the freak show. And and so I, I was trying to get away from that. And, and again, trying to get away from that more sensationalistic narrative of her dissolution and just make the case that, this is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Not greatest woman writers, you know, not greatest feminist writers or mad writers or whatever you want to say, one of the greatest writers. I think basically the whole book is an attempt for me to make that case. <laughs> and and I and this question is, well, would she have been as famous if she hadn't died by suicide? Some of those late poems were picked up and published. A lot of them had already been slated for publication before her suicide. And that's something I don't think people realize. It's not like the suicide happened and then, and then there was this huge rush to publish Sylvia Plath. I think it was New Yorker in particular had rejected multiple things, yes. but at, but at the yes. same time accepted several things. And of course, you had people like Ted Hughes and Alvarez championing her work after her death. And they were very powerful. You know, they had the ear of the critical establishment. And, then, and so, you know, their intervention is, was certainly important in terms of her posthumous reputation. You just made a, a kind of claim, right? You said, you know, you wanted to make a book that would show what you think is true of Plath, that she's one of the greatest writers of the 20th mm -hmm. century, at least, you know, a great poet. I don't, I don't think we can say that ever. Prose. I would argue that The Bell Jar is a, a, a pretty important novel. The Bell Jar, of course, makes a political point. You know, you make political mm -hmm. points throughout as much with The Bell Jar as yeah. anything else. So yeah. uh, it's not like it's not an important book. It's just, you know, if we're talking about art or writing, I suppose. It, it takes, I think, second status to the poetry. Yeah. And, and she, I think that was always her aim too, was, you know, to be a great poet <laughs> before all else. There is a case here for, for Plath, you know, that, that people are generally, you know, they pathologize, as you said already, uh, reduce the art to symptoms. Um, there are those that also obviously deal with the fact that, you know, she becomes representative of, you know, repressive patriarchal society. But your, your goal is, I think, not to, you know, cent, as you say already, not to center in particular on any of these things. They are essential. They are. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And I wanted to give a, I hope a thorough sense of context. And I think that's another reason the book is as long as it is just, I wanted to give a lot of history and to, to put Plath in her historical context and give people the lay of the land in that sense, not just of the life, but, but the people that she was um, corresponding with the politics of the time, you know, the kind of everyday sexism that she just took in stride and almost almost didn't even notice. I mean, <laughs> and just, you know, how tough it was for a woman in the 1950s uh, before second wave feminism to uh, gain prominence within the, the critical establishment, which was, you know, all run by men in America and Britain. Right. So I guess I wanted to highlight that, you know, how much she had to fight for that and overcome. And because I think we sometimes we think about Plath as, as this very fragile personality. I, I think I even thought of her this way before I started the book. And, and, and I, you know, she, when she was enduring severe depression, yes, obviously she was like that. But for most of her life, she was pretty strong. She was a pretty strong person. It's time for a break. 
This is Perry Como with Don't Let the Stars Get in Your Eyes. Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Don't let the moon break your heart. Number nine on the Billboard Top 100 for 1953. More with Heather Clark about her biography of Sylvia Plath. Red Comet. When Interchange returns. Keep your heart from me for someday I'll return and you know you're the only one I'll ever love. Too many nights. Too many nights. Daylight it dies, don't let the stars get in your eyes Oh, keep your heart from me for someday I'll return And you know you're the only one I'll ever Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is Fixing the Stars, Sylvia Plath at the Edge of Sight, with Plath biographer Heather Clark. In this segment, we discuss the mismanagement of Plath's psychiatric treatment and the book that would detail this harrowing experience and much more about Eisenhower's America, The Bell Jar. You're the only one, you're the only one I'll ever love. In the book, you point out that there's, you know, one person in particular, it's kind of the unsung hero of Plath's life. It's uh, Olive, right, Prouty? Yeah. Who basically funds her life. Uh, you know, it pays for so much of, of her living expenses, uh, her even her education and uh, things of this nature. Uh, is there someone that you that clearly do you really you didn't like? I think I, I really had that feeling about um, the first couple psychiatrists that mm. she worked with. I guess throughout the book, I tried to draw attention to the ways in which she, you know, maybe she she had been helped by mid-century psychiatry, but I think she had also suffered um, at the hands of mid-century psychiatry. And and just this idea that some of these treatments um, may have made her depression worse rather than better. And so, yeah, I guess the those two early psychiatrists at um, Valley Head would yeah, earned, earned my ire. You know, it's a hard thing to assess when you know when you detail things like um, I think you call them shock artists. In this yeah, they're just people that you know are doing things they probably shouldn't be doing, and that affect a lot of lives. And we have institutions that we create that are you know they're clearly not what you would call empirically just. It's like everyone's in a big experiment, and it seems to me that that women in particular take the brunt of this experimental phase of what we'd like to call a science. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it was a major issue. And, and Plath herself, in, in one of the most searing letters she ever wrote, I mean, she she writes to a friend about her, her reasons for suicide and, the, and her first suicide attempt and basically says, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in the bowels of a mental hospital receiving shock therapy, you know, more, more or less against my will, <laughs> and, and which is a perfectly reasonable thing to say. And I think, you know, she said she had been traumatized by this misadministered shock therapy um, before her suicide attempt. And, and then at the end of her life, one of her last letters to her American psychiatrist, again, so searing, she says, um, you know, this maybe was the last letter she ever wrote, but she said she was terrified of mental hospitals and lobotomies. A few days later, she, she died by suicide. So it, this is something that is a theme in her own letters through her life. Right. And I, I just, I guess I wanted to call more attention to that, to the fear of institutionalization and treatments she had received. And no, it was an important part of the book for me. I mean, mental illness is not something or mental health is treated poorly in this country. Yeah, there's still such a, a, a stigma. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think that was part of the issue for Plath. She was a very prideful woman. And I mean, we, there's a still a stigma today. Imagine 1953. Um, so let's go ahead and, and jump into the sort of genealogy of Plath. You, you know, as essential as anything else to her poetry, at least is how she explores these issues are her parents. If you can sort of just sketch her parents before we go forward, Otto and Aurelia. Yeah, sure. Um, Sylvia Plath was of Germanic and Austrian heritage. Uh, her mother was first generation Austrian. Uh, her maternal grandparents had immigrated from Austria, Plath's maternal grandparents. Um, her father had come from the Polish corridor. He spoke German and Polish. So he, he had immigrated to America when he was 15. So she really, she was raised in this sort of immigrant household with a, this German, <laughs> German drive, um, I guess I would put it. And uh, her father died in 1940 when she was eight. That was a, a pretty traumatic thing for her. Plath ended up living with her mother and her maternal grandparents to save money. They moved to Wellesley, Massachusetts. Um, they, as I say, they all lived in one house. Plath went to high school at Wellesley High, and she ended up going to uh, Smith College, getting a scholarship to Smith College. And she was just a, a brilliant student in high school and college. Tell us a little bit about Otto's work, though, because it becomes essential to to Plath's. Well, I don't. It is an influence on Plath and his his work as a scientist. He was an entomologist and wrote a uh, quite a long book about bees. He came to America not speaking any English and ended up getting a, a PhD at Harvard, um, and he became a professor at, at Boston University. So you know, obviously a very brilliant man, but also someone with sort of rigid Teutonic habits. I think that's pretty clear from Aurelia's memoirs about him. But yeah, I, he, this um, his academic field, uh, bumblebees. It, it influences Plath, I think, later later on when she writes a, a very important sequence about bees in Ariel. So I think there was a kind of transference of of influence there, absolutely. But also, she's living under the shadow of this brilliant professor, a kind of great man in, in her own family. And I, I think that also was was part of her drive, right? You know, it's very clear in this book as well that Plath had a serious ambition yeah. to be a writer, to be published in magazines, to be a poet, to just live the life of writing. This is a great aspect of the book to me as well, is just how it details that kind of dedication, but the slog of it as well, right? I feel like that was almost 
my major theme, just this idea of her determination to fulfill her literary vocation. And from, from you know, the time she was eight years old and published her first poem to the end of her life and, and how hard she worked and how early on she took on, she took the habits of a professional writer up, right? You know, just sending story after story after story out. Yeah, focused brilliance and determination and ambition. Obviously, these are two sides of a difficult coin, right? The idea yeah. you have to be that kind of dedicated in a lot of ways to get that work done or to become the thing you become. And again, in a, in a, we could call it in a short time period, obviously, go from yeah. a beginner that writes, you know, pretty crappy stories, maybe, yeah. <laughs> you know, in order to try to get the, to, to fill a market. To, but she's yeah. already been determined and working since like she's eight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so she's already been putting in more work than I would have put in in the first you know, 40 <laughs> years of my life by the time she's eight. So I think that's an important aspect here is that it is driven and it is part of the problem, right? It is part of the other side of this is that kind yeah. of ambition is a gift and a curse in a lot of ways. So she's not very happy with herself most of the time. She's relentlessly self-critical. Throughout this book, I just wished that she would give herself a break Mm -hmm. so often. (laughs) I wanted to grab her and say, do you realize how much you've done already? Um, Go easy on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. She had very, very high standards. And that was also clear talking to her friends, for example, at, at Smith College. They they remembered that aspect of her very well. You know, when she was still complaining as a senior about getting a B as a freshman in an English class, that sort of thing. Overnight, very whitely, discreetly, very quietly, our toes, our noses, take hold on the loam, acquire the air. Nobody sees us, stops us, betrays us. Small grains make room. Soft fists insist on heaving the needles, the leafy bedding, even the paving. Our hammers, our rams, earless and eyeless, perfectly voiceless, widen the crannies, shoulder through holes. We diet on water, on crumbs of shadow, bland-mannered, asking little or nothing. So many of us, so many of us. We are shelves, we are tables, we are meek, we are edible, nudges and shovers in spite of ourselves, our kind multiplies. We shall by morning inherit the earth, our foot's in the door. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Heather Clark, who's written a new biography of Sylvia Plath. We've been discussing the drive and determination of Plath, who published her first poem at age eight and dedicated herself to being one of the greatest writers to have lived and the roadblocks that patriarchal institutions put in her way. part of Plath and, and probably any writer is just the world they live in. And, you know, it's a major theme of the book, obviously, is the difficulty of any woman to, to do anything mm-hmm. uh, in this in this time period, in, in all time periods, let's be honest. Uh, and and here, you know, trying to to publish a certain kind of thing, to, to break into print a certain kind of way, to be sort of stuck writing for things like Seventeen or Mademoiselle or Ladies Home yeah. Journal, to be yeah. a woman 
writer, yeah. not just a writer, is a big aspect of the book. Um, but it's not a unique book. The period is full of this this kind of book. And one in particular I, uh, that she herself was reading at the time when I think she killed herself was another book yes. like this, right? The Ha Ha. The Ha Ha, yeah. Very similar book. And I, I think that she didn't know about it and that probably wasn't a great yeah, it's like it's reading about, at that time. Yeah. 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 Because it was, it came out in like 61, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. to be reading a book that was written as much the same as your book, perhaps. Uh, yeah. um, I, I don't, I haven't read that book, so I have no idea if it was any good even, but it got lots of praise when I looked it up. But it, it uh, did, yeah. nobody knows it now. Right. Right. And I mean, everyone knows the bell jar, which is, yeah, interesting. Uh, and this is, you know, post World War II. Uh, this is Eisenhower's America. You know, these are these are important parts of Plath's life and how we have to think about it. The Bell Jar, I think, makes this as explicit maybe as anything else. This is mm-hmm. a uh, a book that does a good job of showing us the world. Even if we do or don't like Esther Greenwood, we see her world. What's this world like? Yeah, I mean, the, this internship at Mademoiselle Magazine uh, was one of the the very few prestigious literary opportunities uh, offered to college seniors or post-college graduates. There just weren't that many opportunities. Um, and so, of course, Plath seized upon this and spent a lot of time during her senior year at Smith doing doing this multi-round, long, complicated application. And she won a spot. Uh, in this internship, and she ended up moving into the Barbizon Hotel and spending June of 1953 living at the Barbizon, which was a woman-only hotel, of course. And and Plath used to kind of <laughs> she would see the the women who were at Katie Gibbs, right, the Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School, and this was something that she dreaded, right? She dreaded this fate of of becoming becoming a secretary. And her mother actually taught secretarial skills. Uh, as part of her course at Boston University. Her mother, by the way, was also someone who had wanted to be a writer once, and that that hadn't happened. But her mother had wanted her to kind of learn how to type, to learn shorthand, all of these skills that would be backups, right, if she didn't make it as a writer. And Plath really resented this. And so, so you know, part of her mission was to just avoid becoming a secretary <laughs> because there's so few options at that point, right? The internship turns out to be uh, a lot harder, I think, than she initially thought it would be. And it takes a toll and she comes and for lots of different reasons, but she comes home and um, attempts suicide that summer. Um, the fact that she was able to then graduate summa cum laude from Smith College not that long after her first suicide attempt is fairly incredible. But <laughs> but she she kind of picks herself up and goes back into this fight to become a great writer. Uh, But as you say, you know, she is kind of shunted into these uh, magazines like Ladies Hood and Home Journal and and the rest. And she writes in a fairly formulaic way to try to get her stories published in them. And and it's really her poetry, I think, where she lets herself go more. Uh, You know, she's someone who is competitive with other women. I think that's pretty clear. But I I don't think that's because she was a nasty person. I think it's because there were so few professional opportunities afforded to women. And, and, you know, she kind of guarded the keys to the castle. (laughs) Um, She did cozy up to men who could help her. There's no doubt about that. I think she wanted some of that male privilege for herself and knew that she had to kind of fight to get it. And uh, she was resented by other some other women that I talked to for that. It's very complicated and to to be a, an ambitious woman writer in the 1950s. 
Um, yeah, no doubt. Even and I think even harder when she went over to England. I think when she was in Boston in 1959 and she was part of Robert Lowell's creative writing seminar and she met Anne Sexton, that was a really important opportunity for her. And I think that was kind of an aesthetic turning point. And she started writing about these issues that, you know, mental hospitals and depression and suicide and this sort of thing. But then she goes to England and she kind of loses that network that she had in Boston. Um, and in England is a kind of a tougher place, I think, in, in some ways for her. So she goes from Smith to Cambridge, right? She yes. gets, does she get another of she gets a Fulbright fellowship? fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 55 is when she starts at Cambridge. Okay. And that's, yeah. that's essentially when she meets Hughes. Yeah. Yeah. She meets him in February of 1956 and, you know, the most famous first date in literary history, I think. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, she bites him on the cheek, right. Yes. Uh, and draws blood. And this is like yeah. known, known by everyone. He, yes. Yes. Yeah. I think this is actually is maybe the first thing I ever learned about Sylvia Plath. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just become you know, legendary. Yeah, it is the, the iconic Plath. Yeah. Um, yes. So, so Hughes and Plath are difficult. Um, together and apart even you know mm-hmm. hughes exists in some measure because because of plath in a lot of ways mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. the, and this is a big part of the book as well is that what made sylvia sylvia led led to hughes becoming hughes <laughs> her, <laughs> you know her desire and dedication to be published kind of transferred to him as well right yeah and and you know she willingly she joked that she was his agent but actually she was and he acknowledged that you know that she kind of made him <laughs> the published writer that he became she's the one who sent the hawk in the rain off to this literary contest that he won and that was career changing you know the fact that he won this contest um and had his first poetry collection published uh, just changed his life but she was the one sussing out all of these contests and sending his work out to magazines yeah absolutely there's a new biography of Roth out too. I don't, I'm sure you've probably seen it, uh, Philip Roth. I read a review of it talking about Roth as a careerist. And one of the things that we can probably say about a lot of people in the 50s is that they learn to play the game as careerists. And being a writer is no different in a lot of ways. And being an, an, an American careerist is also a particular kind of thing, right? You know, so she has to deal with that in England too, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah, she got really um, taken down for that quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. This, this idea you were talking about American careerism, right? Being tainted by this idea that you're writing to publish, you're writing to make money, all of this, this commercial aspect. Um, yeah, that, that kind of attaches itself to Plath, I think, uh, especially in the mind of some of Hughes's friends. And, uh, but, but that's, that's how he became a famous writer. I mean, yeah. I think he, he himself said, I'd be fishing off a rock in Western Australia, you know, if it <laughs> hadn't been. For Plath. And actually, I, I saw he, he I saw his immigration papers in an archive. I mean, I, I saw them all. He was planning to go to Australia right before he met Plath. All the he was trying to get visas and this and that. He was off. He was about to go to Australia and then he met her and the rest is history. It's time for another break. This is The Island of Dreams by the Springfields. The song ended 1963 at number 20 on the UK Singles Chart after entering at number 7 in February. Stay with us for more on the life and poetry of Sylvia Plath when Interchange returns. Over the sea on the island 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of Fixing the Stars, the work of biography is doubled by the sheer presence of poet Ted Hughes, who became Sylvia Plath's husband and father to her two children, Frida and Nicholas, and who is often the primary target of blame for Plath's taking her life. Our guest biographer Heather Clark offers a wider perspective. You know, the biography at this point becomes a dual biography. Yeah, I said that, I think, to my editor. I said, well, I have to write so much about Ted Hughes. <laughs> you do, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Essential. it's essential. I just can't, you know, ignore those seven years. They're so important, not just for Plath, but I think for Anglo-American poetry. Oh, agree. I think of both of them as the sort of two of the most major poets of their generation. So let's talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, class and misogyny in England while we're at it. Class is a real issue to Plath, it seems like to me, right? Yeah, I, I think because she had been in the, this position after her father died where money was really tight, it was precarious. Some of Plath's childhood friends even used the word poor to yeah. describe her family, which seems like a complete exaggeration to me. <laughs> and of course, they lived in Wellesley, Massachusetts, which right. is one of the most affluent suburbs, but they lived in a, a small house. But yeah, I think she was always very aware of class and, and going to Smith College, right? One of the Seven Sisters College, but she was a scholarship girl. So she was always negotiating class. And when she got to England, in a sense, she was free in a, because everyone thought she was a rich American. <laughs> And in a way, uh, that was that could have been liberating for her, I think. Um, at least her, her friend, the poet Ruth Fainlight, who also was an American poet who went to England, told me that's how she, she felt in England, actually, that no one really knew their origin. So <laughs> they, they were liberated from this class snobbery, uh, at least Plath was, that she had experienced in Massachusetts. Yeah, when well, she was given class status, Right. So and, and liberated to be in a different class, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a higher class. And yeah. of course, British culture was regarded with a lot of veneration in the 1950s. And and she even took on a, a bit of a British accent, if you listen to her recordings mm-hmm. after she meets Hughes. And I think that's a class thing, too. And because earlier she has a more Boston, more nasally Boston accent. I'm My family's from Boston, so this is an, <laughs> an accent I know very well. And um uh, have heard all my life. So, you know, I, I was really interested in how her accent changes mm-hmm. over those years. Mm. Yeah. Plath went over as a, a kind of a master of form in poetry. She knew what she was doing. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah. her work is uh, at the time in, in that area in Cambridge and in, in England <laughs> was, you know, prim or constrained. And, you know, she's walking yeah. into a, a group of poets or younger poets, right, who are <laughs> beginning to rebel against the, the yes. poetry of the past. So she's, she's immediately almost uh, sort of disregarded her work is put down. Yeah, she walks into this hothouse, right, of <laughs> Ted Hughes and his friends who are trying to um, write like Yeats and, and they're very Laurentian, D.H. Lawrence, Robert Graves. I mean, they and they see Plath's um, kind of constrained and technically elaborate on uh, metrically perfect verses as as too brittle, right? And And they kind of make fun of her. And she immediately starts to make a shift after she meets Ted Hughes. And uh, I think 
I think she, you know, she had written in this kind of bolder, bracing voice as a teenager. If you look at her juvenilia, some of her poems, they, they have uh, this, they have a lot of aerial motifs in them, it, which is the archaeology of the writing is really interesting in this way. So it's not like she just learned how to write from Ted Hughes. Of course not. Um, I think a lot of this was already there, but at Smith, she had written in this kind of more brittle way to, she had conformed to new critical mid-century tastes that favored the well-mannered poem. And then she gets to Cambridge and she's like, yeah, I don't really want to write like this anymore. I want to be true to my kind of authentic voice that <laughs> has been buried. And these guys are doing it. And I want to write, you know, I, I think it was liberating for her, actually, to meet them and to to decide uh, to to go back, I think, to that earlier voice and to honor that. She needed a kind of permission, I think, in a sense. And also as a woman writer, that she didn't necessarily have to write these prim verses. Again, it's one of the interesting things about the period, uh, you know, coming from Boston and the Boston area and all the poetry happening in Boston. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. Robert Lowell earlier in that uh, poetry program, yeah. uh, Sexton and, um, uh, you know, the Radcliffe Institute thing is in yeah. there as well. So there's just a lot of poetry. Uh, I think Peter Davison has a book, a yes. memoir about Boston in that period as well. Peter Davison, another boyfriend of- Another boyfriend, right. This is a, a function of Plath generally, is that she does make friends with people who will be useful to her. Oh yeah, no, she she knew what she was doing. You yeah. know? Again, I'm just, I guess I'm pounding on the careerist part of things again. You know, you, you're making friends with people who will find a way to help you into print. This is not raw. It's a funny, it's a funny thing to think of it as a wrong thing to do when this is what you would do in any job. <laughs> Right. This yeah, is what you're doing. Yeah. You're trying to make money about anything, you know, trying to give your career a boost, trying to find the right thing to do to talk to the right person. How many times are we told it's not what you know, it's who you know? Exactly. And she was a great networker. I mean, I have to hand it to her. Yeah, <laughs> she, essential to the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's part of her success. She just, she knew what, she knew how to do it. And um, she was good at introducing people to each other as well and yeah, forming those connections. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Heather Clark, whose new book is Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath. We'll turn our focus to Al Alvarez, the highly influential poetry critic of The Observer in London, who, six days after Plath's death, published four of her just-completed poems and a short paragraph of grief, saying that Plath was, quote, systematically probing that narrow, violent area between the viable and the impossible between experience which can be transmuted into poetry and that which is overwhelming. It establishes her as the most gifted woman poet of our time. The loss to literature is inestimable." Let's talk a little bit about Alvarez. I think he comes off a little worse than Hughes, even. (laughs) Not in a terror, like you don't really hammer him. Yeah. um, But he's he's someone that no one that you don't trust, right? You don't trust his story. You don't trust what he's talking about. You discuss ways in which he's untrustworthy because of his own motivations. Um, But he's a very essential part of this story and a part of poetry story in England as well. So uh, tell us a little bit about why Alvarez or Alvarez matters uh, and, you know, how Plath got, got involved with him. 
Sure. I mean, he was such an influential poetry critic in in London around 1960, early 60s, and he could really make or break a career. He was a kingmaker. And it's almost hard to imagine a poetry critic having that much power today. Mm-hmm. But but back then he did. He was a poetry critic at The Observer. And so he loved Ted Hughes's work and he wrote up great reviews um, of Hughes's books. And he also gave Plath a really good review uh, of The Colossus. So she she started sending him poems, hoping that he would publish them in The Observer. And um, he played a really important role, actually, in, in her poetic development that hasn't really been acknowledged so much. And because he became her sounding board after she split with Hughes. Right. Um, so when she was, she went to visit him a few times in the fall of 1962, when she was writing some of her greatest aerial poems. And she had these, I think, really formative conversations with him. And, and so it, it turns out there was a sort of fledgling romantic relationship. I think she was sort of falling in love with him and uh, he backed off um, for various reasons, which I, I go into. It never really, it never talked about that when, after Plath died. And, but I, I think that, I think he did play an important role mm-hmm. in, in that sort of final year. He was one of the people who really championed her. Uh, I mean, even just a week or so after she died with this newspaper article about her, her brilliance and her genius. And so again, you have the most powerful poetry critic in England championing your work it, that's helpful, right? <laughs> in terms of a, of your legacy. He hurt her in some ways, obviously, but I think he also did a lot for her. And some of his writing on Plath is actually, I think, the, some of the best I've ever read. Um, some of it's very condescending, like when he talks about her being a like a priestess emptied out by the rights of her cult. You know, that that phrase I can take or leave. But others, uh, other essays and memoirs that he writes about her, I think he really kind of got her in what she was trying to do and why her poetry is so singular. The applicant. First, are you our sort of person? Do you wear a glass eye, false teeth, or a crutch, a brace or a hook, rubber breasts or a rubber crotch, stitches to show something's missing? No, no? Then how can we give you a thing? Stop crying. Open your hand. Empty? Empty. Here is a hand to fill it and willing to bring teacups and roll away headaches and do whatever you tell it. Will you marry it? It is guaranteed to thumb shut your eyes at the end and dissolve of sorrow. We make new stock from the salt. I notice you are stark naked. How about this suit? Black and stiff, but not a bad fit. Will you marry it? It is waterproof, shatterproof, proof against fire and bombs through the roof. Believe me, they'll bury you in it. Now your head, excuse me, is empty. I have the ticket for that. Come here, sweetie, out of the closet. Well, what do you think of that? Naked as paper to start, but in 25 years she'll be silver, in 50, gold. A living doll everywhere you look. It can sew, it can cook, it can talk, talk, talk. It works. There is nothing wrong with it. You have a hole, it's a poultice. 
You have an eye, it's an image. My boy, it's your last resort. Will you marry it? Marry it. Marry it. Again, we haven't really talked about Hughes. Uh, Hughes and Plath is, I guess, maybe it's one of those stories most people know know anything about Plath or Hughes and poetry that we know their relationship is, you know, tumultuous uh, while being great and also terrible at the same time. They they both think, uh, they both thought anyway, that they they made each other better poets. You know, that's an essential aspect of this is that these are artists in the end making great poetry. They wanted to shock British poetry out of submission kind of together. And it worked. For the first four years or so, they, I think they were good for each other. You know, a lot of your book is, is really detailing the, the ways in which the poetry does relate to particular life, to particular other poems by, by Hughes, to, to letters by people, uh, to experiences from one day to the next and how the poetry is fed by mm-hmm. those, those things. But it then becomes difficult to sort of disentangle the madness in a sense or the depression, the, yeah. uh, the, the, the winter. Right. The, you know, everything. so your book is, you know, as it's a, it is an interesting long book. It goes, uh, it goes oddly quickly. <laughs> a lot of people have told me that I'm very thankful. Well, you know, it is yeah. just a lot of pages, but yeah. you, know, you get to about, I think it's about chapter 30 and the thing starts to roll yeah. um, in because that's what it has to do. That's what's happening. But for me, what was most fascinating was just sort of what felt like the perfect storm of problems, right? Yeah. The, the uh, uh, infidelity of Hughes with Asia Awevel, there's, you know, the just the children themselves, Frida and, and Nicholas, uh, and how Plath has to deal with that. There's the breakup between Hughes and Plath and how that, you know, happens, uh, moving into a great, wonderful house and then sort of having to move out of it. You know, all these things are happening yeah. at this at this point. And one of the issues that I didn't have any clue about, and which is, again, harrowingly told, is those final days where she's just on a lot of medication. And seems to me not only the fact that she's, you know, an American used to certain things in, in, in England, which is, you know, having the worst winter ever and yeah. not having any comforts yeah. at all. Yeah. Exactly. Nor any family, nor yeah. any friends, you know, really, and being super medicated. Yeah, not not a particularly strong support network. And all of these drugs, I don't think at the time their interactions were well understood. And antidepressants were sort of in their infancy. And uh, a lot of people said that she, she was slurring her words quite a bit. And that she was just asking strange questions that you know, normally she wouldn't. And that she would kind of lapse back into an American accent. And it just, she, her behavior was not typical. And I think that fear, that fear of institutionalization was also part of it. Uh, she seemed to understand, at least judging from her last letter to her American psychiatrist, Ruth Boisher, that she was... She thought she was about to go under again and, you know, to kind of lose her mind. And this was terrifying for her. And she was not going to be picked up in a limousine and brought to McLean this time. Right, right. She, you know, Olive Prouty was not going to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for a posh country club-like mental hospital. No, this was going to be very different if, if it happened again. We can't kind of underestimate that fear, I think. Harrowing. It, it really is. And and to me it was it was so essential to the story to feel her pain there, you know, to feel the the suicide approaching and and know, you know, that she's unraveling in a lot of ways, right? Even her physical presence is unraveling. Yeah. I think for me, one of the most important 
documents that uh, I, I came across during the whole process of writing this book was that last letter, which is published in, in Sylvia Plath's Collected Letters. It's the last letter to Dr. Boucher, which was written on, I think, February 4th, 1963. And yeah, in that letter where she talks about her fear of going back into a mental hospital. And which she was scheduled to go into. So did she, she was aware of that? Yeah. I mean, she, the, the doctor that she was working with, who was a very humane and I think by all accounts, wonderful doctor, but he was a GP. He wasn't a psychiatrist. He was phoning hospitals, trying to get her a bed. She knew, you know, she knew this was the plan moving forward. Um, given what she had been through, she told her friend at Smith, her friend, Ellie Friedman, she said, look, if this ever happens again, if, you know, if I have to go through this kind of shock therapy and this institutionalization, I, I'd rather, I'd rather die. Pretend you're happy when you're blue. That's our show. We'll close with Pretend, performed by Nat King Cole, which made it to number 13 on the Billboard Top 100 for 1953. And you'll find happiness without an end Whenever you pretend Remember anyone can dream. The following magazines and journals printed works by Sylvia Plath in the months after her death. Critical Quarterly, The Atlantic Monthly, Punch, The New Statesman, London Magazine, Poetry, The New Yorker, The Listener, The Observer, The Review, and Encounter. If you pretend, you'll find a love you can share. One you can call all your own. Thanks to Heather Clark for sharing a sliver of what can be read in her biography, Red Comet, the short life and blazing art of Sylvia Plath, which totals 966 pages from prologue to postscript. It's published by Knopf. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. The world is mine, it can be yours, my friend So why don't you pretend?